Anybody get embarrassed? I spent this last week talking with those, uh, your friends and family that are closest to you gathering stories, so we'll start on this side of the room and work our way over and we'll see. I get embarrassed. My wife doesn't get embarrassed. I love and appreciate that about her, but I, I get embarrassed. And you have those moments where you say something or something happens and it's just like, oh, this is so uncomfortable. I just want to get away from here. Yeah, I just, I, I don't handle that well. When I was in seventh grade, uh, I showed up for the first uh, day of school and I, I you know, like I want to make a good impression and, and introduce myself to this, my English teacher and want to, you know, like, like have this good moment so she knows who I am. And I just you know, want to be kind, like I want to be a kind person. And so uh, I, and, you know, hi, my name's Josh. And I was like, so uh, when's your baby due? Oh. Well, I know that now. <laughs> Where were you then? A comedian that I like talks about a similar situation. He's like, I think the rule is don't guess at that ever, 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 ever. Because when the answer is three months ago, I feel like, can I get a note? I need to go to the, the, the office and call my parents. Hey, mom, yeah, we got to move. It's, not, it's just not going to work out for us here, mom. It's just not going to work out. I just feel like in that moment, I'm looking at her going, oh, so I'm just going to fail for the rest of the year then? Okay, good. It's just good to know that right now. I just wanted to, I mean, just standing there so awkward where I'm like, okay, there's nothing I can say that will get, oh, this is just going to be miserable. I just wanted to get away so badly. We all have moments like that where we just want to get away. Sometimes, like me, we've said something really embarrassing. Other times, life is hard, and we just want the pain to stop. Well, we're going to dive into the book of Exodus in this series called The Getaway, and it's all about the people of Israel and their dramatic getaway, the way that God stepped into their story and rescued them from this horrible situation that they were in. Now, there's a lot of background to this, and so we want to give you some context and set this up. And first, is Exodus is, is a book of the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. It's a book filled with big, action-packed stories, right? These are great stories in the book of Exodus, the kind that people make movies about. In fact, there have been a lot of movies made about the book of Exodus, a lot of them. Like, for instance, this one, The Ten Commandments, starring Charlton Heston, where apparently Moses is a wizard who conjures lightning out of his stone tablet. Or like this one, Prince of Egypt, which if that's not the poster for like a tween soap opera, I mean, it's like you've got his love interest and then his mortal enemy in the background. Or like this one, Exodus, Gods and Kings came out recently, which apparently is what you get when you take a book of the Bible and you cross it with Gladiator and also Braveheart. <laughs> Moses has never looked so gangster as he does right there. <laughs> Like, I just, I don't think it happened like, yo, Pharaoh, the sword, you let the people, no, that's, uh, but it's, but it's creative, you know, it's creative. This is a big, big book, and so I want to give you some context before we start. If you are here with us last year, we did a series on the life of this guy, Joseph, in Genesis. He's a, a man that God had called for a specific purpose. He went through a lot of pain in his life, but eventually God used that and redeemed that to bring him to Egypt. He was able to, God gave him the wisdom to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, which helped them to understand that there'd be seven years of terrible famine coming. But before that, there'd be seven years where, where they had a great harvest and to save now and to store up now to not only protect those in Egypt, but those in the region. And 
Pharaoh trusted him and he rose to be the second most powerful man in Egypt and eventually brought his whole family to Egypt. And so this is how God's people got to Egypt. It's one of these people that, that God had said, hey, I've made a promise to you. And that's how the people of Israel end up in Egypt. And where we pick up the book of Exodus is they've grown, they've prospered, they've done well, they've flourished, they've multiplied. There are a lot of them. The people of Israel are growing from this family into this this nation. It's been hundreds of years since Joseph was last talked about, and and the the people of Israel have grown. There's, There's a big group now. And Egypt gets threatened. And so they enslave them. And the people of God, the Israelites, are now miserable because their lives are, are they're this brutal, brutal punishment from the Egyptians who fear how big a group they've grown to be. And then in that context, and we're looking at chapters one and two today, Moses is born. And there's a story, if you're familiar with it, where his mom makes this basket and puts him in the Nile River, and one of Pharaoh's family comes and sees him, and right at the right moment, Moses' older sister pops out and says, hey, if you need someone to care for that baby, I know just the person. And so moms, you're gonna, I don't know if you're going to love this or be like super envious of this, but Moses' mother found out a way to get paid for being Moses' mother. It was really impressive. It's really impressive. And Moses grows up and sees someone getting mistreated, and he steps in and, and kills the person who was, who was terrifying and beating up on this, uh, this Israelite, and then he hides the body because he knows he's done something wrong, and Pharaoh finds out, and so Moses flees. And at the end of chapter 2, we see this moment where the, the Israelites are crying out to God in the midst of their pain. Now, we might think that the book of Exodus is all about Moses, right? He's an incredibly important figure. There's no doubt about it. But the two main parties in the book of Exodus are really God and the people of Israel, right? It's God and Israel. Those are the two main characters in this book. And so we're going to look at the the way their relationship is set up in these first two chapters this morning. The first thing that we see is that God causes his people to prosper. God causes his people to prosper. In Genesis, sorry, in Exodus chapter 1, verses 6 to 7, we see, in time, Joseph and all of his brothers died, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. They prospered. Now, that's a good word, right? We like to hear prosper. It's like, I'm all for prospered. And there's, we see material prosperity. We see uh, positional prosperity. They had authority. They had influence. Like, there's, there's good stuff. Like, I think all of us would say, sign me up for that. I will, are, we, are we handing out uh, financial prosperity? Because I, I will take some of that. And that's true. That's what happened. But prosper doesn't always mean what we want it to mean. Right? We need to hear that again. Prosper doesn't always mean what we want it to mean. We want God to do for us what we've determined is best for us. That's what we want. We want what we think is best for us in the time we want it, in the way that we want it. And that's not always how it works. And you might say, well, look, it happened to them here. And I'd say, you're absolutely right, it did. But God had a purpose for that, right? God is trying to, to build his nation. He's built this group of people so that they can have an influence on those that are around them for, for his glory so that they can be his chosen people in this time and place to bring others to him. So they needed to grow bigger and gain influence. This was all part of his plan. This is all part of what he's doing. And our plan is different. And it often does not involve these things that seem really good that we would want. 
But we need to remember what we talked about last week, that God is for us and for our good, even if our good as he sees it is different than our good as we see it. God had promised his people that they would prosper, and here they are prospering, and that's good. And, and what hits me when I think about that is, I get that as a parent. Like, if you have kids, like, that just makes sense, right? Like, I want to do nice stuff for my kids. I want to. I don't want to be miserable to them. Like, I, that's not fun. Like, I, I want to do that. I love my kids, which is good, because they're around all of the time. I want to do that stuff. Like, I want to say, like, absolutely, have four more cookies. I know it's 7.30 in the morning, but go ahead. I'm the cool dad. Like, I, I want to say, like, oh, you want that toy? Let's get it. Yeah, let's do it. Live it up. I, I like when they're happy. I enjoy that stuff. I, I want that to be true of them. Think about watching children open presents. Isn't that fun? You see the joy on their faces, and you're just like, ah. Your heart just feels this feeling. It's like you're being slowly dipped into a warm hot tub. You know, your heart's just like, oh, yeah, that's the spot. It's fun. We want that. But them prospering does not always mean them getting what they want when they want it. In fact, parents, we're, we're, give me a shout out here. It rarely means getting what they want when they want it. That's why we get paid the big bucks to be parents, right? Oh, wait, it's soul crushingly hard and it's free? Oh, right, I forgot. Okay. But that's God's attitude for us. Just because we think this is what will be good for us doesn't mean it's what is good for us. Because at his core, God is saying, I, I'm less concerned with you being happy in the moment than I am for you prospering long term. He wants us to prosper. Egypt had been a really good place for the Israelites. When the land they came from had been crushed by a severe famine that lasted for years, they were safe and full in Egypt. They grew in numbers and influence and wealth. Life had been good. God caused them to prosper. And the second thing that we can take from this is that God protects his people when they struggle. God protects his people when they struggle. Because things started to change. Verse 8 tells us, eventually a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he'd done. And then verse 12 says, but the, the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. Now, I, I find that fascinating, that the Egyptians were afraid because they saw how many the Israelites were, and they realized, man, they're, they're a dominant civilization in this time and in this part of the world. And they thought, man, if one of our enemies comes, there are more Israelites than there are of us. If they rise up against us, we're in trouble. Fear of the Israelite foreigners caused the Egyptians to do terrible, terrible things. And that's something worth us thinking about now, that fear of the unknown or fear of what's different or fear of the foreigner can cause us to do terrible things as well. What the Egyptians did is enslaved them. And you listen to the, the words that are said here. There's some strong language. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build cities. They worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter. They were ruthless in all their demands. Things got bad. Things got really, really bad. What had been good took a turn, a dark turn. We see it in some, in some micro moments and some smaller moments too. Because Pharaoh gave a command that all Israelite 
boys, baby boys, had to be killed immediately. He's trying to, to weaken who he saw as his enemy. And so he tells the midwives, he tells the, the sort of the ancient delivery experts of the time, he tells them, as soon as you see an Israelite boy born, you need to kill them. But the midwives wouldn't do it. And in Exodus 1, verses 20 and 21, we see, it says, so God was good to the midwives. And the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Listen to that. Things were terrible. They had really taken a turn. It was, it was awful. And yet in the midst of that, God protected them. I, I love that language. The more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied. That must have been so frustrating. Pharaoh's got to be saying to his people, like, what is in the water over there? By the way, in the latest installment of the Bible is actually really funny, and we don't always get it. Check out what the midwives said to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 1, verse 19. He's asking, so how's my plan to be this horrible monster and have all Israelite boys be killed? Going. And the midwives said, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are more vigorous and have their babies so quickly that we cannot get there in time. Yeah. Yeah, the midwives are going, I don't know. They're, just, they're different, and their babies come out so fast. And I think it's really some genius, some genius work on the part of the midwives, because I think they know one thing above all else. What's a man going to say to them? What's Pharaoh going to say? Really, let's talk more about this delivery process. No, I think Pharaoh's going, that's enough. I've had enough. That's good. That's, I don't need any more info. I'll take your word for it. That's okay. I'm good. That's... Uh, Boy, that's, that's plenty. Perfect explanation to give to a man about, about babies being born, right? What's he going to do? Argue? Okay, that sounds reasonable, because I don't know anything about that. I think that's hilarious. And I'm okay if it's just me. <laughs> but in the midst of this pain, they're not just surviving, they're thriving. The midwives are rewarded for their faithfulness in the midst of being asked to do something horrible. Israelites are being oppressed more and more and more, and yet they're multiplying still. Because I think one of the things that's important is God knows that struggle isn't always a bad thing for us. He does great things in us through struggle if we don't fight him on it. God's protecting his people in the midst of this. I read an article this week. In 2015, a missions organization named Iran is having the fastest growing Christian population in the world, growing at an estimated rate of 19.6% per year. One expert noted that more Iranians have become Christians in the last two decades than in the previous 13 centuries combined. Crazy, right? But this isn't the result of some radical religious opening, some... some liberalization of society where people can have these different views. No, Iran was a place that over the last 40 years, more than 120,000 people have been executed for their religious or political beliefs. And that the year before this article was written, more than 100 Christians were arrested or imprisoned because of their faith. This is not a place that is warm and fuzzy to Christianity. It's not. And I know that there's times that we will say, well, I'm afraid of people knowing I'm a Christian because what will they say? Let me tell you what they won't say. They won't say you're going to be executed. They won't say you're going to be thrown in jail for what you believe. This is an incredibly oppressive place to Christianity, and yet it is flourishing. You know why? Because Christianity flourishes when it's persecuted. It does. That should be incredibly encouraging and honestly a little bit scary to hear. 
Because it means that there's a problem with comfort and there's a problem with status quo and there's a problem with safety. Folks, if, if Christianity was fake, then persecution would cause it to crumble. If it was fake, then when your life is in jeopardy, when you're threatened like this, it's going to erode and say, well, I, it, this can't be worth it, right? It, it, if it's fake, it's not going to stand up to this kind of intensity. It flourishes because it's real. Because Jesus is who he says he is. Because when things start to fall apart, hope crystallizes. And our selfishness and our pretensions get stripped away. And we're left with the reality that there must be something bigger than us out there. There must be. We're left with the reality that we can't do life on our own. That we need help to make that happen. And that the God of the universe loves us enough to make that possible. I find that so powerful that in some of the, the most oppressive places on earth, Christianity flourishes because people cling to truth. I'm not willing to die for a lie, but we see people give their lives up for, for truth. It's a powerful example. Christianity flourishes when it's persecuted because God protects his people when we struggle. That's what he does. He moves towards us that way. When we're confronted with our own mortality, when we're confronted with the reality of life, it makes us more open to have those kinds of conversations. It makes us more open to God. It makes us more open to those things. And that's why it matters in those moments. I love that God even told them that this was coming. And if you're reading with us in the Ridge Reading Challenge, you read this this week. In Genesis 28, verse 15, God says, What's more, I am with you, and I will protect you wherever you go. One day I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I have promised you. God protects his people when they struggle. Because the struggle is often a tool to draw people back to him. The last thing that we see in these chapters that we can take away is that God hears his people when they call to him. God hears his people when they call to him. Exodus 2.23 says, Years passed, and the king of Egypt died, but the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. Time has passed, and, and this, the weight of this enslavement has become so heavy that they, they cry out to God for help. They're groaning under this pressure, and their cry rose up to God. And I love that language, because I think it's on purpose, that, that cry out communicates a rawness, an intensity, an honesty, and an authenticity, Right? We don't cry out for things that don't matter. We don't cry out for more ketchup for our french fries. And if you do, you very likely have an unhealthy relationship with ketchup. We cry out in the deepest, darkest moments of our lives. We cry out to God when we stop pretending and bear our soul to him. We, when we share our darkest fears and our deepest hurts. That's when we cry out. We cry out when we wrestle with questions like, am I a good father? Am I failing at being a mom? Am I providing for my family? Will I ever find a spouse? What if people knew what I'm really like? It's those things 
things that are at the core of our being, when we struggle with those, that, those are things we cry out about. And I love how Exodus tells us God responded. Verses 24 and 25 say God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. The Israelites cried out to God and what happened? God heard them. God heard them. He heard and he remembered and he saw them and he knew. And I Remembered is really a human perspective. God hadn't forgotten. God didn't need to be reminded. But to the Israelites, it looks as if God remembered them. He saw them and he knew them. And this, this word knew is, is, communicates this intimacy that he knows who they are in, the, in, their, in their soul. He knows what they need. He knows how they're wired. He knows them at a deep level. God hadn't forgotten his people, even though it seemed like it. Years passed before he did anything, but he still heard them. And that's important. That's important. God always hears us. We often just don't like how he responds. And so we can project that out to go, well, because God didn't do what I wanted, he must not have heard me. No, God hears. God always hears us. He listens to us. He wants us to come to him. We just sometimes don't like what he has to say. We don't like his answer. God told them this would happen. They just forgot. They forgot that God had been faithful and would continue to be faithful. They forgot that God told them this was happening and there was a purpose for this. God is preparing his people to be delivered just as he's preparing the one to deliver them. In the short term, that's going to be Moses, but in the long term, that's going to be Jesus. God's calling them to something better. Egypt used to mean food and safety and prosperity for Israel, and now it means oppression, slavery, and pain. They want to be rescued, and, and God is doing that. But he, he's putting a plan in motion. He is working this plan because he has reasons for it. He wants to draw them to himself. Folks, part of the reason why God doesn't, often doesn't give us what we want in the moment we want it is that God knows if we somehow got that, we would take credit for it. If we're honest, right? We'd be like, man, you know what? That must have been my prayer. It was really good. Or we'd say, well, you know, I, I, I know I prayed, but man, then I figured this out over here on my own without seeing God's hand making that possible. God doesn't want our momentary allegiance. God wants our heart forever. And so he creates and orchestrates these situations to draw us back to him. The issue here isn't God's faithfulness. God is faithful. The issue is our willingness to see it, our willingness to trust it, and our willingness to be patient. Because God is at work. What I love is that they can cry out to God. They don't need to go somewhere else. They have direct access to God. Jesus has made that possible. That we know from the New Testament that we can approach God's throne with, with confidence. We have direct access to the God of the universe. Think about that. It's like if you had your boss's cell phone number or, or the mayor's cell phone number or the governor's cell phone number or the president's cell phone number. I mean, imagine, you don't have to go through layers of red tape. There's a pothole outside your, your, your house. You're like, I'm, I'm going to make a phone call. This thing's going to be done. Your neighbor's being a little too loud, one phone call, taken care of. 
You have direct access to that kind of influence and authority and power. That's what we have because of Jesus. We have direct access to the God of the universe. That God welcomes us to him. That when we call out to him, he hears us. God knows that our soul longs for the fulfillment that only he can offer. And through his son, he has secured our place with him. That's our ultimate protection. And he's working in all of these things to create a situation to draw us to himself. And he does that, frankly, in spite of ourselves. Because he loves us that much. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? What does that look like in our lives? Well, I want to give you three things to think about this week. Three things to think about. The first is this. God causes us to prosper. It doesn't just cause Israel to prosper, but he causes us to prosper. Not necessarily the way we want, but the way we need. God loves us and wants us to know a life of purpose and meaning. And so prospering in God's economy, prospering in God's context, means helping us to know love and forgiveness and wholeness and make us more like Jesus. That's what it means for us to prosper. Where is God prospering you right now? Where's God prospering you right now? I want to encourage you to, to take a moment this week to reflect on the ways that God is blessing you and doing good things in your life. Where is he prospering you? Where is he drawing you to himself? God causes us to prosper. Second thing is God protects us when we struggle. God protects us when we struggle. We can have that, that confidence God wants us to turn to him and know that we don't just need to endure a struggle. We can grow and find good in the midst of it. Like we talked about last week, we want God to change our circumstances. God wants to change us. God wants to change us. We need to remember that. Because when life is hard, it can be so easy for us to get stuck, consumed by our situation and lose sight of who God is and what he's doing. And folks, I would... I would tell you the struggles you feel right now could very well be God calling out to you drawing you to himself wanting you to know him and trust him more because if we are honest the moments in our lives when we are most receptive to spiritual conversations the moments in our lives when we are most receptive to believe that that there must be something outside of ourselves that to make life meaningful are when we are hurting it's a dark truth but it's Reality. The moments we are most open is when we struggle the most because that's what it takes for our confidence to be stripped away, for our self-assurance to be stripped away, for us to finally be vulnerable enough to, to acknowledge, I don't know what I'm doing. The struggles you're going through right now may very well be proof of God's love for you as he moves towards you, turning up the temperature in your life to make you uncomfortable enough to be open to fully surrendering to him. What would it look like for you to trust God in the midst of your struggles this week? What would it look like? How can we be a community? How can we be a church that supports people who are struggling? How can we be a place that says, we do not have this figured out. Come and be part of that with us. 
How can we be a community that encourages others to turn back in those moments to find the God who loves them? What would it look like for you to trust God in the midst of your struggles this week? Lastly, God hears us, hears us when we call to him. Think about that. God hears us individually. And when we call them, that's really just prayer. And sometimes that's a word that's like, man, it sounds like super spiritual, but prayer is just talking with God. It's just talking with God. One writer puts it like this. He says, prayer does not change God, but it changes him who prays. Prayer is less about asking God to do stuff for us and more about God aligning our heart with his. It's God working in us to draw us back to himself. Several years ago, I was just in the middle of this really painful situation where I'd just been, someone in authority over me just mistreated, it just felt so mistreated. And it was bad, it was like other people, it was kind of the thing where like other people would be like, man, I don't know why, why it does this, and I don't know why this is happening. And it just made me so angry. And I was so hurt and I was frustrated with God. And, and as I prayed through this, my prayer was, God, help him to see where he's wrong. Help him to own what he's doing. Help him to, to apologize. Help him to do this. And what I found over time is that God was changing my heart. It became harder and harder to be angry because God was turning my heart away from my anger and back to myself. God was turning my heart away from this person and back to me and what he was doing in my life because God knew He could change that other person, but that would not bring out about the change he needed to bring about in my heart. That poison, that anger would have rotted me from the inside out. And God loved me enough to go, I'm not going to fix this right now the way you want it fixed. Because if I do, you will not figure this out. I love you enough to allow you to hurt because I want you to understand that this anger will not lead you anywhere productive. Is it a lot easier to talk positively about that experience now many years later? Yes, yes it is, thank you for asking. Was it soul-crushingly miserable at the time? Yes, also yes. But I look back and I'm grateful that God would love me enough to do that. Are you talking with God? Are you investing in that relationship the same way that you're investing in others? Are you? What would it look like for you to take time to connect with God in prayer this week. I want to challenge you to to carve time out, to take time, because sometimes we'll say, well, I'm going to see if I can find time. And sometimes we know you can't find what you've lost. Don't find something. Take it. Take time. Say, God, this is important. I'm going to set this forward up front. I'm going to take time for you. Maybe it's in your car on the way to work. Maybe it's while you work out. Maybe it's while you eat breakfast in the morning. How can you take time to connect with God? For me, when I'm dry or when I'm feeling stumped, I will pray through the alphabet. And what I mean is I will literally pick a letter and think of something that starts with that letter and pray for that. And why I find that helpful is it stretches me beyond the same four things that I find myself praying for all the time. Maybe if I start with A, I'll pray for my friend Andy. And then maybe B, I'll pray for my brother. And maybe C, I'll I'll confess what I need to confess to, to God. And maybe for D, I'll thank God for my dad and his influence in my life. It just helps me think beyond myself and this bubble that I create around my spiritual life where it's like, here's the same three things, done, check mark, move on. Maybe for you, prayer looks like sitting quietly and talking with God in your head and in your heart. Maybe for you, it looks like taking a walk around the block and praying out loud. 
No, I'm not saying you walk around your block shouting your prayers out. That's how you get the police called. But for me, I find it easier if I talk, if I just talk like I'm talking to you, if I talk to God that way, that helps me focus on that. If you're not spending time with God in prayer, what step could you take this week to start? Powerful things happen in your life when you pray. If you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you're going, well, what do I, what do I pray? I, I, pray your heart. Say, God, I'm not sure I, I get you. I'm not sure I believe you. Would you show yourself to me? Help me understand more who you are. Pray those things. If you would call yourself a follower of Jesus, are you crying out to God with the same urgency and honesty that Israel did here? What's keeping you from pouring your heart out to God? What gets in the way? Is it doubt that he's listening? Is it fear that he won't do what you're hoping? Is it uncertainty on how to do it? Is it shame and embarrassment of the situation you find yourself in or the mess that you've made of life? Folks, regardless of who you are, regardless of what you're going through, regardless of how you're feeling, know that you can call out to God because he loves you and he always hears you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that that's true. We thank you that you love us that much, Lord. We thank you for that truth. We thank you that you will always hear us, that we can come right to you, come before your throne, Lord, that you invite us there. Father, would you help us to look at our lives this week as we leave here this morning and understand where are the ways that you're working, Lord? How are the struggles that we're going through drawing us closer to you? Father, I thank you that you love us enough to allow us to be uncomfortable because you don't want some of us. You want all of us. You know that's the only way we can know the life that we want to know. Father, I thank you, and I pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.